This is Laura Deirdre with the Becker's Healthcare Podcast. I'm thrilled today to welcome Dr. Daniel Durand, Chief Clinical Officer of LifeBridge Health. Dr. Durand, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Thank you, Laura. It's a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. Now, I know we have so much to talk about. There's so much happening in healthcare and really a lot of exciting things uh, to think about over the next year. But before we dive into our discussion, can you tell me a little bit more about yourself and your background? Sure, absolutely. Um, I'm from New York originally and uh, went through medical school the conventional way from undergraduate right into medical school and became a practicing radiologist, uh, was a junior faculty member uh, at Hopkins and uh, felt that I wanted to learn more about delivery system transformation than I could learn in the academic setting. So I got a job with McKinsey and Company and that was about a decade ago. And, you know, as they say, the rest is history. I uh, worked for McKinsey for a bit, learned a, an awful lot in a short period of time about leadership, operations, strategy, and the shift to value-based care. Uh, took a role as a leader with Evelyn Health, which was an early digital health company focused on helping health systems survive in the transformation to value-based care. And right around the time that Evelyn went public, I went back to Hopkins and ran their ACO for a year as a director of accountable care before coming to LifeBridge, uh, where, where I've had um, you know, several successive roles. Um, I'm their chair of radiology and consolidated that function across the health system. Um, also had roles in their clinically integrated network and became their chief innovation officer for several years. And more recently, about a year and a half ago, became their chief clinical officer. Uh, so my scope includes a lot of uh, the value-based contracting on the clinical side, as well as uh, certain aspects of the employee health strategy on the clinical side, and then uh, the duties within radiology uh, and organizing the clinically integrated network as well. Well, that's fascinating to hear. And what great experience to really understand so many different aspects of the healthcare system. Now, given your focus right now on value-based care, do you see that accelerating right now, or do you anticipate it well in 2023? I do see it accelerating. Um, and, you know, there are a lot of different things driving that. We've started talking about value-based care as a discipline at around the same time as the Affordable Care Act and, and, and that sort of first wave of, um, well, I'm not sure it was the first wave, but the most recent uh, wave of healthcare transformation came out of the ACA. Certainly, uh, there had been talk about the total cost of care and how to control that. You know, famously, the HMO movement of the early 90s, late 80s. Uh, you know, was not necessarily well-received uh, on the provider side. The value-based care was conceived of by folks on both sides of the political aisle and on the payer side and the provider side to, to more closely align the incentives of providers to, to collaborate on, on how to not just improve their share of the dollar, right, but also limit the growth of the dollar in a way, uh, the premium dollar, and, and control the total cost of care. That is really, really important going forward because uh, we have this inflationary crisis happening. Um, it's leading to a lot of wage inflation. And ultimately, whether you're a healthcare organization or a different type of employer, you need to be able to keep up with that. And, and so one of the ways you can keep up with that is if you can obtain better control of the benefits side of, of an employee's cost equation, right? If you're going to be growing the amount that goes out in salary, it's all that much more important that you need to try to keep, keep control of um, the health benefits and, and how much that's also growing. Because uh, if they both grow at the same time, it becomes even more challenging for any enterprise 
to, to sort of stay profitable. And this is regardless of industry in this country. So I think there's going to be a lot of focus on it. Um, and, you know, if you look at the stock market and the way that performed over the last year, um, those payer stocks have done reasonably well relative to other sectors of the economy, because there is this thought that even in a recession, this is a fairly, this is a safe haven in a way, uh, because ultimately everybody needs people to work for them. And those folks will need healthcare coverage of some sort. So I, I do think it'll accelerate. Um, the other thing driving it is the uh, Medicare, the so-called entitlement crisis, right? Medicare, Medicaid, and the cost and the questions over the long-term sustainability. It, depending on how you define the baby boomer population, it, it ends in 1963 or 1965, depending on the definition. Regardless of the definition, it'll, it'll be at some point between now and, and 2030 when the final baby boomer will age into Medicare eligibility. And that is, in fact, the largest part of that generation. So as much as we've had this massive expansion of lives on Medicare that the federal government is responsible for, that is going to continue to increase. And so that will, there will be a lot of pressure at the federal level to get providers to take more risk because while there isn't total alignment on all the details and tactics between the two different political parties, there is the general consensus um, that value-based arrangements, whether they're through Medicare Advantage or through um, standard CMS payments, have been more effective at, at producing better quality for lower cost. And we expect to see more of those programs, um, you know, I don't want to say forced, but we'll just say uh, heavily suggested, you know, to providers across the country. That makes a lot of sense. You know, it's just really interesting to hear the recap of, you know, how things are trending right now and really uh, how they've evolved since the ACA went into place. Now, in looking at this year ahead, what are some of the biggest issues you're following um, in healthcare or, or just in general? I think the big issue on the provider side, it depends on, on, on where you define, you know, within the healthcare sphere. Uh, I work for a, a, a nonprofit healthcare system, which is where I spent most of my life and what I love to do. And organizations like ours, um, you know, we're, we're all being challenged right now by a fairly flat revenues. It's not that we're not doing more business, not that we're not treating and helping more patients, but payments are fairly flat. And as you know, wages are growing um, at, at an aggressive clip, somewhere between 5 and 10%. Most would say healthcare wages might even be, in certain um, classes of provider, growing at a faster clip than that. Um, so we have this situation of flat revenues and increasing costs. Um, as, as a, uh, not speaking so much to our system, but just globally, you know, Becker's has done a very good job of reporting on this. So there is, there are those headwinds. And um, so I, I think there's a lot of um, concern over how we deal with that. And I think part of what needs to happen is that the payers and, and, and the government need to think about how to flow more revenue to providers. It's, it's a very difficult position that we're caught in right now. We want to continue to keep the level of staffing and care where it is, but there's just you know less to go around. So uh, we're looking internally at things like automation and, and being more efficient as we have been for years, but now there's just a little more riding on it, you know, given the financial headwinds. Um, I think there's a lot of excitement in the same breath though. Um, there's a lot of excitement uh, for a variety of, of, of new therapeutic approaches that are coming to market. And I think with my, my old innovation hat on, there, there's a number of innovations coming out of COVID that I think will significantly transform how care is delivered. mRNA vaccines are extremely exciting, not just what, what they'll do in the infectious disease vaccine world, but what they may do in the personal vaccine and cancer world. 
we continue to see a lot of novel biologics that are very costly, but are, are you know, revolutionary, uh, revolutionizing treatment for autoimmune disorders and um, a variety of conditions that have been difficult or impossible to control in the past. Um, there's very exciting developments in oncology with CART therapy, um, basically a cell-mediated type therapy that is producing some unheard of results against uh, certain types of cancer. Um, so there's a lot of great things happening. I think uh, many of these things are going to be, uh, with the exception maybe the mRNA vaccine, most of these things, though, they, they come with a high cost, right? So then it kind of brings us full circle back to we really need to f continue to figure out how to transform the delivery system to be more efficient than it is um, in order to be able to leave enough money in the premium dollar to pay for these new miracle cures, not just their development, but to pay for, um, to reward the companies and the individuals that have produced these things. That's really interesting and a great point in looking at, you know, what are, are um, what the new therapeutics and the novel approaches to some of the different ways that you can treat patients, especially cancer patients. But um, really across the board, it's just fascinating to see um, how through the pandemic and, and uh, um, those kinds of things, how it spurred innovation, not only on the operational side, but on the clinical and therapeutic side as well. Um, so I know that, you know, is really exciting to um, think about some of those things. Is there anything else that you're excited about or anything that makes you nervous? Well, I'm nervous uh, for some of the digital health companies, honestly. I think digital health has been this huge area of innovation and explosion of, of funding and sort of good feelings and hopes and aspirations uh, that we might bring a lot of the efficiencies that we've seen in other parts of the economy uh, to healthcare in, in a big way. And I think a lot of that's happening, but as often happens in societal movements, you know, there, there, there may be a period where it's just there's a lot of companies out there that are all trying for a shrinking number of pilots or, or, or opportunities, you know, and this, this period of wage growth is going to force most health systems to really have discipline on what pilots they do and what new products they invest in because they're going to have to invest more in, in their basic staffing. So um, it's sort of this chicken and egg uh, situation. We know digital health and increased automation, things like chatbots or quote unquote AI are really necessary for healthcare workers to ultimately be as efficient as workers in other sectors. And unless we do that, healthcare costs will always seem like they're rising quicker relative to other sectors. And it will continue to balloon past its current you know, 20 or 21% of GDP. So we know we have to do it, but at the same time at times like this, you know, we have to look after our people first because you deliver healthcare with is a very personal industry, you know, um, not just by necessity, but also just sort of ethically and culturally. So I, I think that when I, one of the things I'm concerned about right now is um, I think there, there, there may be a reckoning, you know, for some, some of the digital health space. Uh, and I know a lot of people in it, you know, and, and so I'm, I'm uh, kind of watching that closely. And I'm also a little concerned that as some of those companies come into challenges, that the, the folks sitting on the most money right now are the payers. I mean, it's, it's heads payers win, tails payers win. I'm, I'm not a policy person, and I have plenty of pay, uh, you know, good friends that work for payers, and I'm not trying to vilify them. But, you know, there's no, they had a lot of money left over on the premiums that they didn't spend during COVID, um, kind of paradoxically, because lots of people didn't get care. Uh, they're raising rates on the premium side quite a bit. So it seems like they're always going to have healthy profit margins. And I think that a lot of these digital health companies are going to get scooped up by that, you know, and I think that that could lead to 
some um, further issues with the kind of balance of power and care. I mean, there are good things it might do, but I think of most of these companies have ha- as having a little bit more provider DNA, you know, really trying to get up close to the patient and be kind of in the moment with them. And um, I-, I don't know if that asset class is going to be best uh, stewarded by by payers, at least not all of it. And I, but I do think that they're um, going to be in a position to acquire a lot of these. Um, and that is something I, you know, a little concerned about, to, to be honest with you. Yeah, that that's really interesting. And definitely, you know, a, a trend we're seeing and watching very closely here at Becker's as well. From the health system perspective, as someone who's within, you know, the traditional health system organization, when you see these payers, um, you know, moving to bring in digital health companies to their organization and do something a little bit different, um, you know, how do you think about that? Or is that something, you know, that doesn't really, doesn't really affect what you do so much or your business model, how do you really, I guess, look at it and, um, you know, think about what moves that you'll have to make next from the health system level? Well, I, it's actually, it's very, it's something we work with a lot. You know, we have a, an incubator along with the, the largest blue plan in our um, geography. We, we founded and, and fund the 1501 health incubator, which is on the care first um, can't, uh, industrial uh, the corporate campus. But we uh, have employees there, and we we mentor the startup companies together. They're all digital health companies that appeal to both a payer and a provider. I think that the vitality of that space, right? Um, a lot of the, the good that can be done requires that that, that these the independent companies that can bring payers and providers together. I, I think it's actually harder to pull the transformation off when they're fully owned by a payer. Not that the people within the payer aren't trying to do the right thing with it. I just think it then becomes more, um, I don't want to say suspect, but it gets viewed as more biased. So if you're trying to mediate a process and improve it for patients, and it's previously been something that's siloed, like let's take the prior authorization um, process, for example, you can imagine that a third party trying to kind of work some magic in there and improve efficiencies would be positioned as much more objective if it were independently owned, right? But if it were fully owned by a provider, that would be an issue, right? The payers would view it as uh, suspect. And if it was fully owned by a payer, it would be viewed as suspect by the provider. So what I'm concerned about is um, a lot of the stuff in between in the ecosystem that I think was has the promise of uniting payers and providers and creating a platform that, that improves efficiency and directly engages patients. I just I worry about if, if provider systems are as financially challenged as they seem to be right now, and payers continue to have so much more extra profits that what I see happening is that the digital health space will gradually get acquired by the one side and not the other. And I actually don't think it's good for either party. You know, you know, as long as there's going to be a divide and we're not going to be a single system that's sort of payer and provider, um, then I think that, that you benefit from kind of an intermediary approach with, with many of the digital health tools. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you so much for going through that with us. Now, before we wrap up our conversation, I just have one more question for you about leadership. What will the most effective healthcare leaders need to be successful over the next two to three years, especially as the health system keeps changing? I think every health system leader, even if you're on the nonprofit side, you know, I think number one right now, you need to be really in touch with your people and the challenges that they've dealt with over the last three years, but in many cases, a little longer than that. It's a very tough industry and, and the workforce, it's going through some generational changes and it's going through some 
other, you know, challenges um, with, with things like burnout and mental health that just need to be a flashing red light on every healthcare leader's dashboard. Like every day you should be trying to um, get in touch with people that at least manage people at the front line. Every week, you, sh you know, or more often, you should be in the trenches in a way and sort of um, making yourself known to, to be there uh, in the moment with, with, with this workforce during some of these challenges because it is a particularly important moment for them to feel that. Um, I think most people in healthcare have that uh, in in their in their professional DNA and their in their history somewhere. I think right now is an important time to flex that muscle. Uh, the more intellectual things are the other two or three things. I think you know uh, understanding um, understanding your business as if you're an entrepreneur, even if you're let's say a nonprofit health system you know, president or uh, chief something or the other, or, or even a CEO. I mean, you have to. They're very large organizations, but Within the operating units, they need to be uh, run by by folks um, that have, have almost an entrepreneurial level of, of knowledge. You know, not someone that's populating a position. You know, in a in any kind of bureaucratic fashion, they need to be hands-on owners of like a business, not to rack up profits, but because to be successful in such a challenging economic environment, they're going to need that mindset. Um, I think you'll see a lot of operators, like really hands-on operators. Um, being put into leadership positions because you just have to have that mentality. Um, it is a grind right now. I mean, you have to know your number is very deep, your operation is very deep, your people very deep to be competitive in this landscape. And uh, I think there will be significant consolidation as the folks that sort of can't can't make that work get swallowed up by those who can't. It's fascinating and a really great reminder of just how important um, this time and space is right now for the healthcare industry. Dr. Durand, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. This has been a wonderful discussion and I look forward to connecting with you again soon. Thank you, Laura. It's always a pleasure.